This is your invitation to the intersection of versatility and design. The kind of experience you can only find in a Lexus SUV. A feeling this empowering is invite only. Fortunately, you're invited. Experience the versatility of the complete line of Lexus SUVs and some of the best offers of the year on select models at the Invitation to Lexus sales event, now through April 1st. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hi, it's Fraser here. Before we get into this week's Spike podcast, I just wanted to let you know about a very special event we've got coming up. Spiked will be returning to the Battle of Ideas, Britain's premier ideas festival where free speech truly reigns. While we're there, Spiked will be recording a very special live edition of this podcast. That'll be on Saturday the 28th of October at 12.15pm. For the pods, joining me will be Tom Slater, as per usual, plus some special guests, including Constantin Kissin, Rakiba San and Inaya Falarin Iman. Now, if you haven't got your ticket already to the Battle of Ideas, then now is the time to get one. It won't just be our podcast. We'll also be recording a special edition of Last Orders with Tom Slater, Chris Snowden and special guests to come. Plus, across the weekend, there will be loads of spiked writers speaking on all kinds of panels, as well as hundreds of other fascinating thinkers. To get your ticket for the Battle of Ideas, just go to battleofideas.org dot uk and while you're there you can use the promo code spiked to get yourself 20 percent off a ticket that's battleofideas.org.uk and the promo code spiked to get yourself a 20 percent off discount see you at the event hello and welcome back to the spiked podcast i'm fraser myers and with me this week in the studio we have spikes editor tom slater hello and spiked columnist and author of How Woke One, Joanna Williams. Hello. Coming up on today's show, the Russell Brand scandal, Rishi Sunak's U-turn on net zero, and how the medical establishment fell for trans ideology. Now, if you're listening to the audio version of this podcast, make sure you subscribe to this show with whatever channel you use to access this podcast. And if you're watching us on YouTube, make sure you not only smash the like button, subscribe to the channel, and most importantly, click the bell so that you never miss an episode. So some fairly astonishing uh, accusations have been made against Russell Brands. They came to light on Sunday in the Sunday Times and through a dispatches uh, investigation via, via Channel 4. Uh, these are very, very serious crimes. He's been accused of rape, sexual assault by multiple women um, over a period of uh, just under 10 years. Joe, do you think there is a bit of a danger, however, however serious these allegations are, that Brand has started to be subjected to a kind of trial by media? Are we forgetting the presumption of innocence? I think I think we absolutely are. And I think that's the thing that really became apparent from the moment that these allegations first broke. Uh, what really struck me was the way that people seemed to take a side on this issue uh, on both sides. On the one hand, you had people who uh, believe all women, these women must be telling the truth. Women never lie about these things. Um, they seem to have found Brand guilty. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, you had Brand's defenders who love his uh, YouTube channel, um, love the fact that he asks questions about what's the truth and who's controlling the society we live in nowadays and they seem to believe that he was innocent uh, believe that he was innocent automatically so on both sides you had these very 
quickly emerging but very entrenched positions of where the brand was guilty or innocent based on nothing more than whether people happened to like him or not. Um, it was quite alarming, I think, the speed with which this this belief about his guilt or innocence really seemed to take hold. And at the time we were recording this, Brand hasn't been arrested yet or charged with anything, let alone convicted. And yet, Tom, it seems as if he is already being punished mm -hmm. for this. Yeah, that's already um, begun in earnest. I mean, not only the presumption on behalf of many people that he's banged to rights and therefore he should have all t ties cut with him. I think the most kind of clear cut and to my mind, quite worrying development on the kind of punishment side of this has been the response from some of the social media companies. So mm. YouTube has demonetized all of his videos, which considering the fact that he has gone down this kind of conspiratorial influencer kind of route is presumably quite a large chunk of his of his revenue. Um, there has since been, obviously, the intervention from Caroline Dynage, who's a MP in the House of Commons, also chair of the um, Commons Select Committee on the Media and Culture writing to other platforms demanding to know is he making money from your platform and could you please stop giving him money from your platform got a very pointed response from rumble which is a kind of free speech alternative to youtube saying they weren't going to join in on the council culture mob i dare say some of the other platforms won't be necessarily as principled and i think it's a, it's an example of how essentially the people have presumed his guilt and now they are moving towards trying to meet out the punishment without ever having to bother with the legal system and this just gets us into a very dangerous kind of space and all you've got to do is take a step back from it or half a step back from it to realize that if you create a precedent whereby if someone is just accused of serious crimes yeah. and that is all this amounts to at this point however thorough we want to say the investigation is however much you find the circumstantial evidence that is presented there to be credible this is just an allegation at this point or several allegations that instantly you can be unpersoned on social media or you can be deprived of your income that's clearly a terrible precedent to set, which could quite easily be exploited in the future. And you don't have to cast your mind very far back to think of people prominent in public life who have been subject to false allegations. So as ever, it's been very difficult to kind of detach or to pull apart the kind of sense of, regardless of how you feel about those reports, regardless of how moving you found them, credible you found them or whatever, we have these kind of standards in not just courts and not just the criminal justice system, but in life in general for a reason. It's to... Yeah. It's to protect against those kinds of abuses, but it feels like we've refused to learn the lesson of that, even though we've been reminded of it quite a few times in recent years. I think this intervention by Caroline Dynage was truly shocking. I mean, you get used to this kind of online censorship in a way, but but for one person, one MP, to take it upon herself to write a letter to the social media companies demanding that his content be taken down in this way, I, I found truly shocking. I mean, the question that immediately springs to mind is who the hell does she think she is mm. uh, to have embodied in one person the power to determine what other people can and cannot watch on social media in that way? The sheer kind of arrogance of her position I found truly astonishing. And there was something um, even more alarming about her letter that I thought was um, she essentially said that Rumble and other platforms shouldn't host anything that might make the victims feel uncomfortable. Now, first of all, that's a big leap, assuming that um, there are victims. So at the moment, they are alleged victims um, in, in a legal sense. And also, you know, presumably she was talking about, she didn't specify, but presumably she's talking about the videos where Russell Brand defends himself. Now, you don't have to believe a word the man says, but surely that's a pretty basic right that we have in a liberal democratic society to defend yourself against allegations. 
Absolutely. And as soon as you make that your standard, not making people feel uncomfortable, you know, you could then have carte blanche to argue that anything needs to be removed um, from this platform. Uh, Any discussion featuring Russell Brand in any way, shape or form Mm. could arguably make alleged victims feel uncomfortable. But I think you're absolutely right, Fraser. I mean, the, the most important point here is she has found him guilty seemingly or by herself in the absence of of trial and and jury she's acted in that role single-handedly and as tom points out feels as if she has it in her capacity uh to to deny him of a source of income and deny everybody else the opportunity to hear what he has to say and and tom it feels like it's not just russell brand who's been deemed guilty Mm. uh, from all this but also the entire period every every single person who was a public figure in the in the 2000s uh, has something to answer. You, you keep seeing this phrase, the the nasty noughties, yep. as if this were some sort of you know cesspit of horror, that particular period. No, it has been striking to see that the 2000s now qualifies the bad old days. It seems to get closer and closer as the, as the years roll on. This tendency to kind of blame this sort of nebulous era or mm. this idea of... It it's often goes hand in hand with these scandals where there's a desire to take it away from the cult, from the alleged culpability of a particular individual and to try and extrapolate onto society as a whole, the television industry... The tabloid press is naturally implicated because of the sun name and shagger of the year or whatever. I mean, that's one element to it I find really quite sickening. There's a, there's a certain type of commentator who will never pass up any opportunity, no matter how cynical, to just have a bash at the sun newspaper. So it's become that as well on one front. But yes, I think that tendency to always look at allegations of individual criminal wrongdoing and try to treat them as a symptom of something broader, in a strange sort of way, let's alleged criminals off the hook i mean you're kind of blaming society for their crimes you're blaming ed Miliband because he gave an interview to him or you're blaming owen jones because he won't share a platform with him it's a very strange situation to be in just before we move on from trial the whole trial by media thing the one thing that is worth saying is one of the big problems with trial by media is the extent to which it can end up scuppering actual trials Mm. this is something that everyone seems to forget in these situations unfortunately with allegations this historic it's very difficult to get them to trial potentially but at the same time if it ever did, depending on the jurisdiction in which this took place, depending on the circumstances, it would be relatively easy for a defence case to say, how could you possibly get any juror to weigh this up yeah. in an even-handed fashion, given the fact he's been declared guilty by all of the newspapers, all of the great and good anyway? Mm. This is something that we saw come up in relation to some some of the cases which made it to court in relation to Me Too. So that's another thing while, you know, upholding this standard is really important for justice yeah. it's not because you just want to defend these things because you secretly just quite like russell brand it's about the fact that if ever there's a chance of justice being done you obliterate it by indulging all of this trial by media and presumption of guilt stuff. and and finally joe what do you make of the way that you know there's been a kind of eliding of the very serious criminal offenses that russell brand is accused of and just his you know sexuality more broadly his promiscuity even his jokes seem to be um, you know, accused of hiding something criminal. No, absolutely. And I think this is all getting bound up in this revision of the um, early 2000s as a period in particular. Um, I think the way people are talking about it, you would assume that this was a very long time ago, but but we're not talking about ancient history at all. You know, we're talking about 
in the relatively recent lives of most people who are still working as commentators, media pundits, comedians on that kind of circuit nowadays. The evil Tony Blair era. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. And uh, you see a kind of revision that disturbs me of the way that kind of sexual relationships even are being talked about and brands being fitted into this, as you put it, the whole decade being put on trial. Um, but there's a sense that that kind of the promiscuity, if you like, that was accepted and joked about um, in those early 2000s is now being rewritten as a period which was shockingly abusive mm. for women. And, you know, actually, it, this ties in with the whole kind of trend of critiquing the sexual revolution that we also see nowadays. And I actually think it's worth just pausing a second and saying, you know, not every woman who was around in that decade uh, was a victim of abuse, either by Russell Brand personally or just in general. And, uh, you know, it, it wasn't uh, a time of rampant sexual abuse and, and not it's not to say that a victim feminism, which seems to be dominating nowadays, is necessarily progress for women. But it just seems that there's been so many kind of complete about turns where you look at commentators who back in the 2000s were writing about the scandals that the brand was was well known for. You know, in some ways, these allegations are not astonishing. They were kind of all out there. It was he was very public about his behavior, you know, and he got publicity and plaudits for bragging about his kind of sexual exploits. Um, but but it seemed to be commentators on the left at that point who were kind of complaining about right-wing critics being prudish and moralistic. And, you know, if you were left-wing and radical, you found all of this an enormous joke. And they're now doing a huge about turn and kind of trying to backtrack from that position. But it also shows where the how the free speech debate has changed more broadly. I think the same commentators who were happy to defend Russell Brand's free speech um, were people on the left mm. primarily um, 20 years ago. And it, in the space of 20 years, it now seems quite surprising to us that people on the left would be the defenders of free speech in that way. I'm, I'm just um, struck by that point that we began this conversation with, which is the fact that we've got these kind of two different forms of unreason now cropping up in relation to these big allegations. That's something that we're really going to have to learn to navigate because we've been having to deal with the legacy of the kind of hashtag believe women compulsion from the Me Too movement, um, this standard, which is obviously a recipe for injustice. Mm. Um, But now you've got, on the other hand, blind disbelief or blind belief in the accuser because you happen to like his YouTube channel, um, which is very much kind of product of the quite conspiratorial climate which exists, not just in Russell Brand's section of the media, but in section of politics, I should say, but other sections of politics as well. So that's going to be a really, it's going to be a really difficult, really important thing to navigate, which is to say, we have to stick up for these principles precisely because whether it's blind belief or blind disbelief, it's a recipe for injustice. Yeah. But we seem to keep forgetting them. Definitely. And just to add very quickly to that, I think that's one of the many problems with the censorship that's coming mm-hmm. in around yeah. this. So Caroline Dinages, when she writes a letter demanding that his his platform be removed, it completely uh, reinforces the conspiratorial thinking about this. We knew this was all about shutting him up. We knew this was all about um, stopping him having a platform. These conspiratorial thinkers can now say, you know, look, we, we can now prove that we're right. This is exactly what we were trying to tell you. And I think the more you let everything out in the open, the, the easier it is to kind of squash some of these conspiracy theories. Now, I know a lot of you out there value your freedom just as much as we do here at Spiked. And one way to become truly independent is by starting a business. Except becoming your own boss can be tricky. 
Luckily, there's one way to make it really easy, and it sounds like this. Yes, that's the sound of another sale on Shopify, the revolutionary all-in-one commerce platform that gives you the power to launch and grow your very own business. Shopify empowers millions of businesses worldwide, whether they're trading in tools or toiletries, by simplifying how they can sell their goods, both online and in person. Receiving payments, managing products, and overseeing marketing are made incredibly simple with Shopify. Now, I know what you're thinking, how the hell is all of this possible? Well, Shopify has all of your bases covered, from a slick point of sale system ready for your shop front, to an all-in-one e-commerce setup. Plus, Shopify will help you expand your reach by putting your business on social media marketplaces like Facebook and TikTok. Don't worry about losing your independence either. Shopify gives you complete control over your business and brand. And through industry-leading integration tools, business courses, and a really simple-to-use management dashboard, Shopify will show you how you can achieve all your ambitions. So what are you waiting for? If you're serious about selling and want to bring your business idea to life, it's time for you to get Shopify. Sign up for a £1 per month trial period at shopify.co.uk slash spiked. Go to shopify.co.uk slash spiked to take your business to the next level today. That's shopify.co.uk slash spiked. So Rishi Sunak announced this week that he will be watering down some of the UK's net zero policies. Most notably, he's pushing back the ban on petrol and diesel cars and the phasing out of gas boilers in favour of heat pumps. Uh, Tom, I mean, this is quite a significant intervention. I mean, he also said that um, politicians have been systematically dishonest with the public about the cost of net zero. It's probably the most um, serious attack on green politics we've ever heard from a mainstream politician. Yeah, I mean, it's a low bar, isn't it? Yeah, it's still, it's quite, <laughs> but I'm, I've been very struck this week by the fact that the most modest sort of milk toast revisions mm. to the net zero targets have been met with such abject fury, which has kind of made me think that, as you say, this is actually a very significant, quite bold intervention by the standards of our quite conformist politics on this particular question. The 2030 to 2035 petrol and diesel car ban pretty much brings it in line with where much of Europe and the developed world is at in terms of where their laws are. Turn on the Today programme this morning, you would have thought the Queen had died. <laughs> it was incredible. There was these these um, targets, which in that case I think was set in 2020. Mm. Where it was like he was committing some sort of horrendous heresy in British public life. A target set by Boris Johnson is suddenly incredibly important to all of the great and good. And I think it has just really shown what a sort of quasi-religion this has become for a lot of the political and media elites. I mean, there's obviously a lot of Tory bashing mixed in with it. I mean, this is the sort of thing you could easily have seen Keir Starmer quietly doing because for some reason he thought it was politically expedient and he probably wouldn't have got the same sort of flack. There's a tendency to focus on this car company, which has said this is the worst thing in the world, rather than looking at that car company who said, actually, this is a bit of a sigh of relief because no one ever thought we were going to hit these targets. Um, but it has really... Um, as, as, as I say, as modest as they are, I think the fact that it's caused so many people's heads to explode just tells you what we're up against in terms of pushing even further with getting rid of things like net zero, definitely. Joe, do you think it's this kind of sign that maybe the voters are actually being considered for once in this debate? <laughs> 
I hope so. You know, I, I really, really hope so. What worries me, though, I think about that very, very point is the way that so many of these policies have been seemingly flippantly uh, written into law, mm. uh, most notably by Theresa May. And however much the voters might then push back against these and, and politicians like Sunak appear to be responding to the voters, uh, the fact of these having been enshrined into law adds a further layer of complication into overturning this and really ties the hands then of people like Sunak who perhaps maybe do try to respond a little bit more. Um, so, I mean, I think Tom's absolutely right. You know, what's being suggested here is so incredibly modest. Mm. And and to me, it strikes me that um, much this is just about coming in line with the reality of where we're at anyway. I mean, it was not the case that we were all going to be driving electric cars by 2030. I mean, this is absolute cloud cuckoo land to think that this was going to happen and we're all suddenly going to get heat pumps, you know, so that by changing the law, by changing what's going on in this way, um, you know, it's it's kind of a reflection of of where we're at yeah. and the the instincts of, of voters to push back against it. But you're absolutely right as well about the hysteria. I mean, Just Stop Oil have described this as genocide. <laughs> I mean, seriously, you know, five extra years on um, petrol cars, yeah. genocide, and really exposes their irrationality. And, and you know, the government hasn't abandoned the net zero target. Exactly. You know, we're still planning to hit net zero by 2050. I don't think it's possible at all, even by then. Um because not least because the sort of technologies that don't exist, at least to make this a pain-free transition. You know, if you think about electric source heat pumps are infinitely worse than gas boilers. You know, it can take a day to heat your home rather than a 30 minutes or something. Mm-hmm. Electric cars, um, you know, they can't travel as far as petrol cars. We don't necessarily have the infrastructure ready for them. And they're way more expensive. The cheapest electric car is about £10,000 more expensive than the equivalent petrol car. It's just, you know, consumers can see that they're getting a raw deal. Voters can see that this is not in their interests. Mm. And yet there is just this very strange, you know, the establishment is really lining up to defend it at all costs. It was really interesting as well, the way you had Rishi Sunak, again, in a very partial, mild way, tried to say, look, we're in the middle of a cost of living crisis and you're expecting people to pay 10, 20,000 pounds to fit a heat pump or you're expecting them to fork out for an electric vehicle that they can't really afford. And the response was really quoting the Climate Change Committee and various car manufacturers. It was a nice kind of encapsulation of whose interests are being served by what in mm. this kind of discussion. And also the, the theme that we often return to when we talk about environmentalism is these goals and these targets, they are not a goal set to, we're going to abolish child poverty, or we're going to do this, or we're going to do that, we're going to make our constituents' lives better. We're going to hit this arbitrary climate target which even if it all works out on its own terms, given us more, we are, will make basically the, not even the blindest bit of difference yeah. in terms of emissions on the global state. It is putting ideology ahead of what used to be just the fundamental responsibilities of government and the social contract to make people's lives plusher and better and a bit easier. So I, th- I think that's been flushed out as well. We have Rishi Sunak saying, you can't be serious. And then saying, no, we are very serious. <laughs> we will happily put that. First, no, I, I think that's absolutely right. It's really brought home, uh, brought to light uh, what will be required to meet these targets. I mean, when Sunak even talked about not imposing a tax on meat, I think was what he said. Uh, you know, it hadn't even been raised properly in the discussion that there would be uh, increased taxes on meat. But of course, that is absolutely the reality yeah. of hitting these targets. So at least uh, Sunak's done us all a favour by shining a light on what this will involve. Yeah, I think because that's been part of the discussion honesty around this um that you know you could 
listen to politicians, listen to green advocates, and you think it's just a few more wind farms here, a few more electric vehicles there. But as the Climate Change Committee themselves make clear, um, most of this, most of the reductions in emissions come from behaviour change. And if you think that behaviour change is going to be voluntary, then I have a wind farm to sell. <laughs> you're going to be, you're going to be coerced into it yeah. through taxes, through restrictions, through bans. And you know, Joe, you're right to raise the fact that you know this is the law of the land. It's also bound up in international treaties, yeah. um, from the Paris Agreement to the Glasgow Accords. It's gonna, it's bound up in trade deals as well. It's a condition of um, international trade that we hit these targets. So. You know, it's there's not been any democratic scrutiny whatsoever, but we have one hell of a fight on our hands if we're going to unpick this. Yeah, I think that's right. And also, it's really important to explode this claim, which is being made by some of the usual suspects at the moment, which is he's going to get on the wrong side of the voters with this because they love net zero. They can't get <laughs> yeah. net zero. They'd ban meat tomorrow if they could. It's complete and utter nonsense. I mean, yeah. Ed, this is obvious to anyone who looks at it in, into it for about five minutes. If you poll people and just ask them, do you think we should hit net zero? Again, I think, you know, people interpret that as should we have clean air? Should yeah. we, you know, live in a sustainable fact, just kind of vague sense of doing, you know, right by the environment. You get like 70% support. As soon as you start to mention even quite modest costs that it might uh, affect you, it drops down to like a quarter or less. I mean, there was a really fascinating poll just before COP by one particular consulting firm, I can't remember which. It's something like only 7% of people would happily have themselves, people like them, their family, have to foot most of the bill for net zero. Then they're just not willing to do it. And people could try and present that as um, being selfish or whatever. I think it's entirely rational. It's not what you expect from your politicians. You don't elect people to make things more expensive. You don't yeah. elect people to make your life uh, you know, less free. And yet now we're really starting to see, again, just ordinary people's interests collide with these goals in quite an interesting fashion. The, the job, as you were suggesting, is just to push it further now, definitely. So the General Medical Council, the body responsible for upholding medical standards in the UK, has removed all references to mothers from its policies on maternity and has removed all references to women in its in its guidance on the menopause. Joe, what do you think it tells us that an important medical organisation like this has, you know, gone to gender neutralize all of their language essentially uh, it's totally embarrassing i mean you can't imagine for one second that these doctors i mean presumably after six seven years of training and many years in practice don't actually know the difference between male and female anatomy and don't really know that it's women that give birth and go through the menopause and so it suggests this is just an entirely political move on their behalf and it, they basically acquiesce to the transgender activists they've complied with what Stonewall wants to see implemented in their policy. I think the frustrating thing is um, with the trans debate more broadly, it's kind of feels like you're playing a constant game of whack-a-mole. Mm. You know, as soon as you kind of stop uh, some mad guidance taking into a effect in schools or in one sphere of life, up it pops somewhere else. Yeah. And, you know, you, you can never seemingly reach a point where you just relax and say, you know, rationality has has worn out you know there's always these different areas um you know these are internal policies for the gmc but i think it does need to worry all of us because as you said this is the um governing body you know sets the standards but also has influence over um medical training yeah. um so th this this kind of this is the language that um medical students junior doctors are becoming accustomed to and it it I'm becoming increasingly concerned at how it actually ends up impacting upon how we even think, yeah. you know, how mm -hmm. we 
begin to conceive of the world, you know, the more you get used to hearing these terms like pregnant people, menopausal colleagues, you know, the, you end up finding yourself even thinking in those terms yourself. And I think this is a, a huge problem. You know, we really need to kind of reclaim this language and doctors need to be able to assert the right to say that women are female. Yeah. I mean, Tom, could you even trust the doctor who thinks oh. that men can get pregnant? <laughs> Ask me if I had a bonus hole or something. Yeah, no, this, uh, the medical profession is a fascinating one where these things come up because, I mean, this is an example of a maternity policy that cannot admit to the existence of mothers. Yeah. This is a very strange state of affairs when you get into that sort of situation. And when you, the, the kind of language and the kind of new words and pronouns and all sorts of things which are being introduced, people often say, oh, this would be really confusing if you weren't a native English speaker, if you're an immigrant mm. background. This is confusing to most people, I think. Yeah. If you go up and you just start naming body parts rather than talking about anything <laughs> else, or if you start naming orifices with slightly strange names, this is something which is going to become a barrier between um, clinicians and their, actually their patients. Uh, the only th the only thing that you can hold on to is that obviously this is this is a sort of lip service that goes on. It's a sort of genuflection, but it won't be forever because if yeah. they're being taught this stuff, if there's a younger generation who've been going through medical school, uh, very much kind of surrounded by all this kind of ideology, it won't necessarily be like that. You know, it won't just be a virtue signal at a certain mm. point. This will yeah. just become it part of the practice. Already has consequences. I mean, the General Medical Council advises that um, you should change your patient sex if they self-identify yeah. as another yeah. sex. And the result of that is that, you know, biological women miss out on smear tests because they find themselves in the wrong category and prostate checkups for mm. biological men who, who claim to be women. So it's dangerous for transgender people in particular. It, it seems to just appease a set of activists. Rather no, than absolutely. Not. It's also dangerous and troubling for, uh, has consequences for which ward somebody yeah. would get yeah. placed on. Um, should they go in hospital? And um, we've had various rulings and messages coming from government about the importance of single sex wards. But again, it just shows how the NHS as an institution is unable to bypass essentially government policy by introducing their own restrictions or their, their own kind of regulations. Um, I mean, what concerns me in all of this is how, what it says about the purpose of the NHS as well. Mm. I mean, and we've also seen this week the amount of, again, another announcement about the D, uh, NHS setting up kind of centres to promote diversity, equity and inclusion and people and community, people and culture. And it just seems like so much money, um, so much staff time is being diverted into these essentially woke projects yeah. that are far more concerned with politics and far more concerned with what people think about than the physical state. And it almost suggests that there's a, a desire to, uh, I'm perhaps going a bit far here, but almost to to change the purpose of the NHS. They're far more concerned with our thinking mm. um, than they are with our bodies. You know, they're less uh, concerned about wanting to treat the physically sick as they are about re-educating people who think the wrong thoughts. Um, you know, and particularly when this lands in a week when you've got both doctors and consultants on strike, yeah. you know, they're not queuing up to get into work to actually perform operations, but they are able to come up with all these bonkers policies about gender identity. It's embarrassing and awful. Thank you for listening to the Spike podcast. We're back every Friday and you can now watch us on video too. Check us out on YouTube or go via the Spiked website, which is spiked-online.com. See you next time.